we have the opportunity to really embrace our longevity. Booming, the podcast, offers insights and inspirations about how all of us can age successfully, how all of us can boom. My name is Marcus Riley. Welcome to Booming. Understanding the law when it comes to finance and family, health and retaining control is crucial to us having the right plans in place and to making the right decisions. Which is why today we speak with legal eagle Brian Hurd. In the simplest terms possible, Brian will break down the legal matters we need to confront, address issues such as family dynamics, warnings of what can go wrong, and even how your lawnmower can tell you a lot about your stage of ageing. Be ready to take notes as we speak with Mr. Brian Hurd. Brian, you're an expert and a renowned authority when it comes to elder law. Can you explain for us what elder law really is and the relationship between the law and getting older? Mm. Uh, Elder law is really a seed that was born out of longevity. In other words, the increasing trend for current generations to live much longer than previous generations. The result of that is that many more older people now suffer from conditions they never used to because gone are the days when you retired at 65 and dropped dead at 66 still clutching the gold watch. Now many of us go through to the 80s, the 90s, even the 100s. And in that longevity process, it sounds a good idea and a great result for us, but in the end there are legal issues that arise in that longevity era that the law has had to grapple with. So when we talk about older people, we used to talk about older people in the context of dying, death and wills. Because of that era of living longer, other issues have now arisen that attract the interest of the law. And those interests particularly arise out of the question of what's called frailty and dependency, which is the consequence of living longer. So, for example, so far as elder law is concerned, we are very much focused on that period of time between retirement and effectively death where we call frailty creep occurs. So we are creeping in frailty during that period. And as a result, we can become reliant or dependent on other people. And when we become reliant and dependent on other people, that raises legal issues because we have, for example, a huge concentration in older life in terms of Who's going to make decisions for us, for example, if we lose our capacity, which is a consequence of living longer? So that raises the issue of the enduring power of attorney, and that can be a very fraught and vexed legal issue, especially if you've got seven children, for example. So decision-making for you by other people in later life is a major, not so much new legal development, but certainly a more pronounced uh, and current legal development. In addition, we have people who can do, for example, these days what's called advanced health directives, which people never used to do in previous generations. Now you can do these documents where you can anticipate losing your capacity to tell people what you want in terms of your health care, including whether you do or you don't want life-sustaining measures, uh, if ever you can't make those decisions. We also have another area of elder law which is also booming in many ways, and that is the area of where people live when they get older and frailer. And that raises all sorts of uh, varieties of lifestyle which never used to exist. And one of those which is increasing all the time is family agreements or granny flats. So what's happening with older people is that they're starting to rely more and more upon their family to provide them with accommodation in later life, both because it gives them a more familiar and familial environment, but also because it tends to be financially cheaper. 
as opposed to, for example, going into residential aged care. Yeah. So those issues are really the essence of elder law and also the law responding to the demands of ageing in terms of the trends that occur because of living longer. Brian, I want to come back to a lot of those issues you've just touched on and delve a bit deeper into them. Before doing that, you've been involved in this area of law and indeed this area of society for for some time and you've been hugely committed to it. What motivates you to maintain that commitment and that interest, that contribution to this area of society? It's a combination of the personal and the professional. From a personal point of view, my parents, who are still are very much alive and kicking. Uh, my mum is 89 and my dad is 90. So I live with very elderly parents in the sense of being one of their five children. And I see them regularly because I'm starting to see them more regularly because of their increasing frailty. And we're starting to take a much more hands-on interest in their affairs. So I've got a personal interest. Professionally, I have often been confronted by the antics of children when their parents get older. Because this is an area where, unfortunately, when older people become dependent, they also can be taken advantage of. So the area of elder abuse, for example, is a major aspect of our elder law uh, practice because some children, not all, some children see it as an opportunity. And uh, particularly if they get appointed an enduring power of attorney, they see it as if they've been bestowed, bequeathed with this power over their parents and that can be misused. So as a result, in terms of motivation, I always have as a lawyer a great sense of writing injustice. That sounds like a cliche, but it's something that's always motivated me. In fact, motivated me to become a lawyer. And that's been maintained throughout my life and in many ways given a boost by discovering elder law and seeing how the vulnerable can be taken advantage of. So it appeals to my my desire to help. There's a saying about lawyers that are good lawyers that... We are people who do well by doing good for a reasonable fee, of course. So motivation-wise, I have no difficulty because it's given my legal career a new boost, a new interest, and also it's a frontier. And I like being a frontier person, um, the Davy Crockett of law, because the reality is there are lots of demands and threats in many ways to older people that the law is still trying to catch up with. Yeah. Just sticking with the personal motivation, if you don't mind, for a moment... Was there a particular point where you thought you needed to be more involved in your parents' ageing and and their journey? Was there a particular circumstance which sparked that motivation to a higher degree or has it been something that's evolved naturally as you and your family have have got older? Well, they've gone through a, um, a downsizing process. Now, that downsizing process is always a signal of increasing frailty. It's a need where they need to downsize to a smaller place. So I often describe my parents downsizing by reference to their lawnmowers. Because my mum and dad <laughs> my mum and dad used to live on uh, five acres and they had a ride-on mower. Yes. And my dad loved riding his ride-on mower every weekend. It was a form of respite. But then they downsized. No, no one can disturb you while you're on the ride-on mower, right. can they? Because <laughs> it's so noisy until you can't hear anything. <laughs> So then they downsized to a normal suburban block and they brought a Victor. Then they downsized to a manufactured home park, which has a backyard the size of a postage stamp. Yes. And my father brought a push mower. You know those ones where you've got blades that go around at 100 miles an hour, depending on how fast you push it? Yes. And now they are living effectively um, in a family arrangement. So they've downsized through those processes, and I've watched and been involved, obviously, in those processes. 
And now we're at a stage, for example, uh, where they're considering the next process, which is residential aged care, for example, supported living. No lawnmower needed. No lawnmower needed. <laughs> so I've, I've experienced it, yeah. and I am experiencing it, which gives me great insight as well into the professional side of what I do. Uh, absolutely. Coming back to the professional side, uh, I know that a lot of your work has, has really involved educating both people individually as well as organisations to consider aspects about um, our ageing journey, issues that might otherwise be overlooked. And, and you mentioned before that we've moved beyond just dying, death and wills when it comes to the law and older people. What are some of the key things that we should be thinking about as we do get older? And in particular, uh, issues around finance and family, and you alluded to that just a moment ago, and also the issues of health and dying. Are there some key considerations there that we're often overlooking that really we should be having in front of mind and, and factoring into our plans? We engage with many of our clients in what we call um, family planning, which is not the sort of family planning that you and I may have practised many moons ago. <laughs> but it's a form of planning where we try and encourage families particularly, the collective of the family, to start planning. I know planning is um, a bit of a cliche as well, but to start planning for what's called the what we call the C change, not the SEA change, the capital C change. Capital C stands for crisis. The crisis mode that many families get into, for example, when mum goes into hospital one day and the family gets a phone call to say she's in hospital, they say she can't go home. And if the family hasn't done any planning to confront that issue, you then go into crisis mode. And because crisis mode is when the worst decisions are made and where decisions have to be made, particularly in those sorts of circumstances, very quickly, the worst decisions are made. So they wouldn't have got, for example, financial advice about the issue of where and how mum's going to pay for where she has to go, let alone where she can go, let alone what to do with the home. Right. So Australians are really good at waiting and watching. They're not very good at acting. Which really limits your choices, doesn't it? That limits they're available your choices. to you in that crisis. Extraordinarily. Crisis. And the other consequence is it can implode the family. Because when there's three or four children who have to discuss what to do about mum, with mum and with themselves, invariably there's a disagreement about what should happen. Particularly exacerbated by, you know, one of the sons is in Equatorial Guinea and the other one's in Houston and yeah. one in Japan. So the reality is the threat to the family is understated when it comes to the issue of not planning mm. for your parents. So what should we be doing, A, as the older individual themselves, and B, if I'm the family member who should be seeing what's coming on the horizon or what may come on the horizon, what should those parties be doing or what can they be doing to better support that family planning and avoid the sort of circumstances you're outlining? They have to overcome some cultural cringes here. The first cultural cringe is that older people will invariably not raise their concerns themselves with their children. The other cultural cringe is that the children don't like to raise with their parents because it looks as though they're trying to interfere or control their parents' lives. So we've got this sort of standoff mentality until the sea change arrives. So one of the sides of the equation has to take the initiative and say, from the child's point of view, Mum, Dad, it's time we sat down and talked about the future. Now, you've got to confront that because if you don't confront it and have that conversation and not only that, go to the effort and the expense of getting some advice about the options for the future, 
being well informed, there is no substitute for being well informed before that sea change arrives. Because that means you can make good decisions as opposed to bad decisions. So confronting this issue is really important. And invariably, I recommend that children do it because it's very difficult to get the older person to do it. I want to get to some of the uh, things that have gone wrong or things that you've observed that we should be more aware of because we can get ourselves into challenging circumstances. But in terms of you observing things done well, are there particular methods that you've seen families employ which have made those difficult conversations possible whether it's, as you just promoted, whether it's the child, the, the uh, adult child taking the initiative or whether it's a, a family member, uh, an older family member themselves, are there particular methods that you've seen which might be a bit different that have worked for families and, and helped unlock that cultural cringe? Mm. Uh, one of the limitations of being a lawyer is that we are trained religiously to accept that we must identify who our client is. And when you're dealing with an extended client base like a family... Most lawyers will tell you you can't act for a family. You can't be like um, directors of the company. So for lawyers in this space, it requires us also to be a bit courageous and brave and, and look outside that ethical square in an effort to bring families together in a meeting, for example, to talk about what needs to be confronted. We've done, for example, in the past what's called um, family harmony agreements. Family harmony agreements. Family harmony agreements. Now, that's not per se a legally binding document. It's simply an aspirational document where the family gathers together under our auspices and we talk about mum or dad's circumstances. We talk about what the future could hold. We do a bit of crystal ball gazing and then talk about what the options might be. We can then even talk about uh, aligning or allocating duties to children, for example. Uh, so that they're prepared and able to pounce, as it were. Have you seen the situation where individual family members almost bid or put forward a pitch to be allocated certain responsibilities? Yes, or? we do. We do all the time because uh, there are children out there we call martyr children. <laughs> they're, the, they're the ones... Selfless. Selfless. They're the ones who have no hidden or secret agenda. They simply are the caring child. And as the caring child, they should be bestowed with all the relevant relevant duties. Uh, which, of course, can um, provide all sorts of incentives for them. In all seriousness, though, Brian, with that sort of approach, moving towards a family harmony agreement or at least uh, broaching the conversation, I'm assuming that's done in a a lightest fashion as possible. So it's normalising the conversation, it's making people feel as comfortable as possible and allowing people to be as honest as possible in what could be a very awkward, challenging dynamic. Indeed. Because what we're doing is diving into the family dynamics. There may be the dynamics which are poisonous already. And there's nothing like mum or dad needing assistance or support to make that even more poisonous. So it's always a a bet in some ways in trying to do it, overcoming these repressed enmities and jealousies between children because the circumstances of mum or dad can bring out those enmities and jealousies. So it's a delicate path to tread in terms of getting them to see the light and repressing their own enmities uh, for the benefit and the best interests of mum or dad. So that's a large part of the process. Um, And in many cases it works because we use a bit of negative psychology, such as hell, pestilence and damnation shall follow you if you don't follow uh, our advice about this, and give them lots of riveting examples about what can happen if you don't confront this early rather than later. 
So in many cases it works, in many cases, some cases it doesn't work simply because there is too much entrenched uh, dislike or even hatred between children, which is sad because that's only going to get worse, of course, um, when the crisis happens and they simply don't talk to each other. And you cannot live as an older person if you have children without the support of your children. For those people who don't have children, that's another issue. But Can I just hold you on that? statement, Brian, why can I not live without the support of my children as an older person? Uh, you can if you're prepared to pay to be supported. Now, for example, I have a family I'm acting for, when I say acting, I mean advising at the moment, where they've finally decided they can't drive their car anymore. And in fact, both mum and dad's licences have been taken away from them. The car has also been taken away, take away the temptation. So now they are literally... Um, isolated, ensconced in their home without the ability and the freedom they used to have, which is a very traumatic experience for older people. But what it means is they need support to get to places. So, question, who's going to do that? Now, traditionally, children would do that. Alternatively, you can get people paid to do it for you. Now, most parents would prefer their children to do that. So that sort of support provided by children is not only cheaper, but it's normally what parents want, as opposed to paying for some anonymous third party who comes in once a week to do some particular task, and if it takes more than eight minutes, you get double the price. <laughs> the reality is children are cheap, convenient, effective, and you really like to have them around. Looking at it from the older person themselves, we just talked a bit about what family members can do and trying to bring forward the conversations and support the planning of their older family members. If I'm the individual myself, what are some of the things that I need to be aware of by way of risks? So in terms of protecting my finances, in terms of planning for potential health requirements and the inevitable end of life that will come at some point, what are some of the risks I should be aware of as an individual or as a, as a couple which should cause me to act or to to plan ahead in terms of these various circumstances that might arise? One of the conditions that afflict getting older, particularly for older single people, is the scourge of loneliness. In fact, I saw recently that the UK government uh, appointed a minister for loneliness, so it's taken that subject very seriously. When an older person is lonely, they tend to do things they wouldn't ordinarily do. So you often hear about scams, for example, internet scams. So in terms of anticipating that, it's important that older people understand what they might end up doing under the force and the influence of loneliness, which again means they need to be able to communicate with people and not retreat to their bedroom. Uh, so the reality is, provided they can talk to somebody about the consequences of being lonely, then that can be helpful in addressing the downsides of being lonely in terms of what they might do. It can also mean doing what parents sometimes don't like to do, sharing some intimate financial details with their children, such as their passwords, such as what are their bank accounts, where are they? That sort of financial information that the previous current older generation may have always been taught or believed you should keep private, even from your own children. Yep. So there's this, or even from your spouse in some cases. Even from your spouse in some cases, particularly where there's been a traditional relationship where the man controls the finances. I should tell you, I had a, an elderly woman recently whose husband died and she was asked to pay for something. So she was going to use the checkbook. So she wrote out the numbers 
in terms of the amount of the cheque and the words and then gave it to the person in payment, yeah. not realising you had to actually sign the cheque. Yeah. So you'd never, ever signed a cheque. So that sort of controlling relationship is a problem. But provided you have people who can support you uh, confronting the loneliness of being single and older and potentially living in your still your big old Queenslander, what the implications of that might be, mm. sharing your financial information is, can be really crucial because life is uncertain. And the reality is tomorrow your mum or dad might have a stroke. And if that's the case, you are then in a black hole as a child if you haven't had a sharing of this information. And that also requires children to confront it with them and try and convince their parents, which is sometimes what they have to do, in order to get that information in anticipation uh, of that potential day. So what are the legal instruments that we can put in place as a family to provide access to that information in the right way, but also maintain the suitable protections around it? And we'll talk about the risk of elder abuse a little bit later, but in terms of that peace of mind for all family members that things are being done right, the information is accessible when needed. What are the right legal instruments that people should be looking at having in place to provide that peace of mind? There's another cultural uh, cringe in Australia, and I call it the mafioso syndrome, where families prefer to keep discussions about things involving the family within the family. So they are reluctant, for example, to go outside and seek advice. And if they sought legal advice, the good legal advice would be that mum or dad needed to make sure they had the essential instruments of a will, an enduring power of attorney and an advanced health directive as a minimum in place. And not only that, the children know that. Yep. So that the children know where to go and get those documents whenever it's necessary, as opposed to mum or dad hiding them somewhere, which doesn't help. Uh, telling the children can be a very important part of the process. They are the bare minimum documents. But also... A lot of parents and children are entering into arrangements these days, again because of longevity. I mentioned one re previously, the granny flat arrangement, Yes. where they simply have an oral arrangement, a shake of the hand over a kitchen table one Saturday morning and a cup of tea about mum moving in tomorrow. And, and, that's, and that's just to, to comment on that. That's what most families presumably are most comfortable with, and, and that's the way the family does business in the sense that if we're going to make a plan, if we're going to make an arrangement, it's done through a conversation and a, and a nod and a, that's the way we'll do it. Moving to more of the formal arrangement around enduring powers of attorney and, and wills, as well as advanced health directives, how do we make people more comfortable about proceeding to that more formal extent rather than relying on what's been the, the kitchen conversation to... Mm -hmm. Look, um it's always a difficult task to get people to confront unpleasant things, such as either death or even losing your capacity, because you just don't want to do it. So I've grappled for years about how to do that, and now I've sort of decided that some of my clients, for example, are baby boomers, and they still have parents. So I try and inculcate into those particular clients the importance of them confronting the issues that I'm confronting with them with their parents. So this is an opportunity for the children not only to talk about their own lives, but also to talk about raising these issues with their parent. Because it's very difficult to get to the parent, because a lot of older people these days from the older generation aren't even technologically savvy. So they still like getting letters in the mailbox. 
So the reality is getting to them can only be through the auspices of other people. And that's where their children come in. And that's certainly for our perspective is where we like to convey the message to the older person is through their children. Because so much of what we tell these baby boomers us is equally, if not more, opposite to what we should tell their parents. But apart from that, I've got no secret hidden solution as to how we get the message to people about the consequences of doing these things, except to say to them, the negative psychology, what happens if you do nothing about a will or an enduring power of attorney? What so, so with that negative reality, which is occurring in all sorts of different circumstances, what are some of those scenarios that are playing out, Brian, that, that you've seen in your experience that should help motivate me to, to do something in terms of family planning? Mm. If you don't have an enduring power of attorney in place and you lose your capacity to make your own, for example, financial decisions, nobody, nobody can make those decisions for you. Not your spouse, not your children, not your dog, so not your neighbours. So even if I'm on my, literally on my deathbed and my wife is there beside me pleading with my doctors, my, my therapists, she has no authority to instruct them. Is that what you're saying? Uh, in that scenario, she does, but not in relation to my financial affairs. Right. So if you don't have an enduring power of attorney for your financial affairs, you are in a legal black hole. Yep. And that's a problem mm. because what it means is your spouse then has to race off to a tribunal to get appointed to make financial decisions for your spouse. Mm. And that costs money. Mm. It's inconvenient. It's costly. It's delaying everything, which is not what you want at that point. Yeah. Uh, so the consequence of not doing something is that. And most people say, oh, I don't want that. Oh, I don't want that. And I say, well, you've got to do an enduring power of attorney. If you don't do a will, what happens? The law says what happens, not you. Yeah. And the reality of that is what the law says is what most people don't want their will to say. Uh, so the reality is not having a will creates, again, a legal problem and it creates potentially family implosion. That's the legacy of not doing these things is the effect on the family. Not so much the cost and the inconvenience and the delay, it's the effect on the family relationships. Mm. And, and I take it you've seen that quite a lot in terms of this impact on the family. All and, the time. Yeah. It's very depressing. Yeah. And, um, you know, we need someone to get out there with a loud hailer and tell them they need to do something. And because the reality is post that loved one's death, there's nothing you can do about it. Too and, late. and you're living with that, um, whether it's guilt, whether it's an emotional complexity, you're living with that. That's right. Forever afterwards. Yes. Mm. Death is an end to many things, and, and that's one of them, your legal recourses. Yep. So, yes. And, Brian, if I am inclined to put a will in place, put the other legal instruments in place, what are some of the protections I should be conscious of in the interest of my family that I'm leaving behind? So whether it's a son, daughter, whoever, um, I'm bequesting to them certain things financially, uh, what are some of the scenarios that might play out for my family post my existence, which should be informing the way I set up my will and, and the legal instruments? Uh, one of the things that older people tend to want to do these days is, when they do their will, to acknowledge the contributions of their children, um, as opposed to simply doing what older people used to do, which is just give everything equally to the children. And now, because care now becomes an issue for the parent later in life, and because one or two of the children are special in that sense, because they're the ones who provide the care, parents can often see that that really is fair that you compensate them for that care and give them something more in your will. 
Now, that's probably reasonable and fair, but again, it can lead to a family dispute after you die because, as you know, children can challenge a parent's will and those other children who aren't given that sort of compensation invariably, from my experience, will challenge the will because they'll say, all right, it's all very good that you did that sort of care, but that's what children do. That's their filial duty to care for their parents. So you shouldn't be compensated. And in any event, you wanted to do it. So, you know, that's your choice. Yes. You shouldn't be compensated just because you did what the children are expected to do. So that issue is becoming a brooding issue out there in terms of parents acknowledging particular children and the care they provide. What's also happening is that parents are actually benefiting or giving inheritances to grandchildren. And, and missing the... Missing, yeah, they, what's called generation jumping. Yes. So they're jumping their own children because they say, all oh, their children are very successful, they don't need anything, so I'll jump them and give everything to my grandchildren because their futures are uncertain. I'm just making a personal note of that no. to follow up. <laughs> <laughs> so they see that as an opportunity to do sort of a level playing field type. Mm. Give more to those futures that are uncertain as opposed to their own children whose apparently their futures are certain and, and stable. Uh, and that has a downside, of course, mm. because in the end what happens is you pit parents against their own children. Mm. And that's a very unedifying situation to get mm. yourself into. Even though the grandparents, for example, are well motivated yes, and it's all very well reasoned, but again, lawyers' best job is to tell people that what they can do what they want but do they understand the implications? Do they understand what could happen? So just coming back to the notion of compensating or recognising a child's contribution, so your law firm hasn't got to the extent of developing a criteria in which uh, a person could apply to determine who best to uh, allocate their, no, Marcus, their finances no, to? No, law, law is not um, amenable to mathematical equations. Um, so no, we haven't done that. It's a case-by-case -case basis, as they say, <laughs> and, uh, in many fields of, of life. Brian, just taking a step back and in terms of thinking about my future uh, as a, along my ageing journey, we've talked around those key legal instruments and when my health may change, end of life, etc. Before that, as I enter a phase which might be approaching retirement or other transitions, are there things we should be considering there that we should be undertaking as part of that process, as part of that journey, which would help protect our futures or help better set ourselves up as we progress through these different transitions? Yeah, it's all about, as I said, cultural attitudes confronting the future now, not when the future arrives. I have involved my children, for example, in my parents' circumstances because I know one day I'll be where my parents are, potentially. So my children then become those people who need to know uh, what to do about mum or dad, as I need to know now about my mum and dad. So there's a generational uh, spread here in terms of uh, younger generation people understanding what can happen to their own parents, let alone their grandparents. So educating your children when they get to an age about these issues and involving them even in discussions with grandparents can be really important to give them an insight into the future. And what's really strange is that many of our parents, the grandparents, actually were involved in caring for their parents. But they don't seem to use that experience in their own backyard. Yeah. They just don't want to talk about that or think about that. Yet they've been there. Mm. They've been in a situation of caring for their parents, but they won't accept that's going to happen to them. 
So involving extended members of your family can be important in this conversational approach to the future. Uh, but having those instruments, those legal instruments in place is just crucial. Yep. And you've got to understand, when you've got seven children, that's a diplomatic nightmare in many ways, but it still has to be confronted. And it's never too early to pursue those. Never too early. No. Because we can update them, we can change them, we can vary them as, as circumstances change. You should promise your children when they turn 18 that the present and the gift <laughs> they will get is an endearing power of attorney in which they promise to appoint you. As their <laughs> and, and make I'll, them a will. And I promise not to skip them in my <laughs> will. Brian, you're a champion in the fight against elder abuse and you've been strongly arguing for the criminalisation of financial elder abuse. Why does this need to happen? And perhaps the more difficult question is how can it be achieved? Indeed. There's no doubt in my mind that there is an undiscovered well of significant financial abuse happening out there. We just don't know the extent of it. I suspect it's enormous. And the trouble with the law is it's a very blunt instrument when it comes to prosecuting the conduct of family members against other family members. And I have to be a bit technical here. Sure. But if you apply, for example, the law of stealing, which is what children do, uh, to what they do, you understand three things about stealing. It has three components. One, you take something belonging to somebody else without their consent and with the intention of not returning it. So if you can satisfy those three criteria, then you are guilty of the charge of stealing. Now, the problem with those criteria is that number two gives to many children an out. Number two is without mum or dad's consent. So the trouble is children will argue, even if they're charged, which in most cases they're never charged, uh, that mum said I could or dad said I could. But mum can't say otherwise now because mum's lost her capacity. So what that means is the very traditional definition of financial criminal offences doesn't fit the conduct. Yep. It doesn't catch the conduct. So that's why, for example, in America... They have subtle criminal offences. For example, exploiting an elderly person. Now, exploitation captures that sort of conduct as opposed to the broad stealing kind of conduct. And is that law about exploitation targeting within a family? That's Correct. Right. It, it's, it talks about taking advantage of a person right. financially as opposed to taking something from them. It talks about advantage taking, which, is, as I said, captures the conduct. Can you... Give an example of circumstances that you've seen in relation to financial elder abuse and how how shocking it is. Yes, and a lot of abuse, they say, who are the abusers, is uh, the result of ignorance, they say. There were three people who came to me one day, three children, and they were the three children of an elderly person who had been admitted to a nursing home and leaving a very large, valuable home vacant. Three children were her enduring right. power of attorney. Uh, they then got together and thought, well, hang on, why, why have you got this mausoleum sitting there with yep. no one in it? She doesn't need it. She's never going back. Let's sell it. Right. So they promptly sold it as her enduring power of attorney because she had lost so that, her So they had the authority. They had the authority too. She had lost her capacity, so it triggered their power. They sold the home for about 850000 Right. And the next thing they did was they distributed that money each equally to themselves. Right. While mum is still in a nursing home. So they're all in it together. All in it together. Yep. And what was extraordinary about it was that they couldn't see what they'd done was wrong. Mm. 
despite the fact of telling them, for example, that it was an absolutely disastrous consequence for her mum or their mum because of the the gifting rules under the Social Security rules. Yes. She had gifted $850,000 to them. Yeah. And she lost her pension because of what they did. Not to mention it was effectively a criminal offence. Yes. And the other response was, we were going to get it in the will anyway. So we're just preempting the will and bringing it forward without understanding here is where the law comes in, yes. the implications of yes. what they were doing. It's just extraordinary. And that, that sort of thing happens all the time. Yeah. But the, the repercussions for that, for those actions were what? Well, um, the public trustee got involved. Someone told the public trustee about this and they got a letter from the public trustee saying, please explain. So then they came to me with a letter from the public trustee and I had to explain to them why they were asked yeah. to please explain because what they did was wrong. It was against the law. Regrettably, maybe not from their point of view, mum died about two months after I first saw these people. So that then brought an end to the interest of the public trustee. Right. And it never went anywhere because mum died. And the will came in and the will said give everything equally to three children, which they'd already got anyway. So it was overtaken by circumstances. But it's an example of what people get up to, children. Both parents were still alive in that circumstance and mum is in the aged care home and the family members are pushing for the, the, the house to be sold. The father might be against it but feels limited in, in what he can do to, to stop it. What, what can someone do if they feel at risk of being financially abused? Uh, well, um, the law says this. The law says everyone is presumed capable of making their own decisions until there's evidence to the contrary. So in many cases, an enduring power of attorney, for example, cannot exercise their power unless the person they're the power attorney for has lost their capacity. There are exceptions to that. So to the extent that a person still has their capacity, they say, the law, that they have the ability to control what happens to them. This becomes, unfortunately, a more subtle issue because what happens is children then start to influence their parents about what to do. And there's all sorts of influence some unlawful, some lawful. I mean, you can have undue influence, you can have due influence. Sometimes I think it's a very good idea to influence your parents, and sometimes it's not. So the reality is it's very important for a parent to appoint, for example, as a protection, at least two of their children. This is a basic protection, as opposed to one of their children, leaving the other three or four out in the, in the boondocks, as it were. Yes. So the protection for parents is to make sure there's more than one person involved in that enduring power of attorney so that they're actually having to make decisions together and they're watching each other, they're scrutinising each other to the benefit of mum or dad and also for the benefit of the others who are not appointed. So it's, it's a question of how well you do these documents, not just doing them, it's how well you do them to protect against those sorts of scenarios. And maintaining the currency of these And maintaining these the currency of them, yeah. particularly. Yeah. Brian, the standard final phase of these podcast interviews is a series of uh, more rapid-fire questions. So these are slightly more personal, but shorter responses is all that's required. First one is, what concerns you about ageing? Dying. Not being dead, it's going through a dying process. In other words, a slow decline into protracted a certain life. Protracted. I don't like a protracted death. If I'm terminal, I want to die. I don't right. want to go through the process of dying. Do you think that is an increasingly common perspective? That's an unfair question for you to probably answer, but again, from your experience, are you seeing that sort of 
desire expressed more commonly? Yeah, I think a lot of it's repressed. I think older people get concerned about how much they depend on other people and how much they put other people out yeah. in terms of what they have to do. So I think they, they repress that, that wish, yes. that desire. Um, but if they could have their way and it was legal, they may very well bring their lives to an end in order to overcome that concern they yes. have about all this reliance on other people. Mm. They get they very feel like they're going to be a burden. They're a burden. Yeah. yeah. What gives you confidence about your ageing? Uh, that I have children. I think if I was ageing without children, I'd be concerned about my ageing process mm. because that I'd then be relying on people who don't have a connection. Yes. Uh, and who may actually charge for their services as well, of course. So having children, I think, can be a, a, an adequate and a good protection for your ageing process. Not to say that people who don't have children um, are going to be adversely affected by ageing, but certainly they have a different dynamic to address when it comes to ageing. But having children, I think, is a very good antidote to a depressed ageing process. What would you tell the 50-year-old you with the benefit of the wisdom and insight you've gained over the X number of years since the 50th birthday? You mean personally or professionally? Personally. Well, in any, in any respect. I think at 50 you need to decide how long you want to live because you're halfway there, technically speaking. So when I see very old people in their 90s, I think, I don't want to be like you. I know being alive is good and apparently it's what we aim to do. I want to run a marathon at 100. But I... At 50, if I could convince myself that once I reach, for example, 75, when doctors tell me your body starts to break down, between age of 75 and 80, I'd say to myself as a 50-year-old, that's when I think you need to find a better place. What have you seen affect or perhaps hold people back as they age? Uh, fear. Fear about? Fear of the physical consequences of ageing, like falling. Yes. Uh Fear about being alone, fear about financial demands that they can't quantify. Uh, how much do I need when I get old? A fear about where you're going to live, how you're going to live, how will my children support or not support me? Uh, will I be a burden? Those sorts of things. Yeah. And that's a consequence of being frail, mm. really. And we would argue those fears are very justified. It's then it's not that you shouldn't have those fears, but it's what you do. So the question is, can you be frail and have fun? And that's something I would grapple with in some ways. But fun for a 90-year-old must be different when they were 50. They would be. I used to play golf with my father. He can't play golf anymore. Sure. So those sorts of fun things must transform over time. But finding fun as a frail person, I think, is a worthwhile pursuit, if you can find fun. Do you think it's, do you think it's the notion of... Uh, doing those fun things in a different way, for example, playing virtual golf instead of real golf, or is it finding new things altogether that will provide your sense of fun? New things can be really important because it gives you a, a, a fill-up, an incentive. Um, for example, me, I'm 66 and I started and I finished writing a book. Now, I've never contemplated doing that before, but yes. I've done that at 66 yes. because I don't run marathons and I don't want to. So those sorts of pursuits are something I've discovered which I really like and that's something I think you need to do as you get older. So digital economy I think can be really important for older people because that, that vicarious pleasure of participating in golf without participating in golf uh, can be really um, something to look forward to which is always a difficulty for older people. What to look forward to? 
Absolutely. Particularly if you don't have a job to look forward to, if you do look forward to it. Yes. What do you do each day when you get out of bed? Mm. Uh, and having a plan for that, or having some aspirations about that, or looking for something yes. that you want to do. Just looking can be fun. Yeah, and being open to something. And being open exploring. to a suggestion. Yeah. Did you have a point where you realised you were of a different age, either physically or psychologically, and, and how did that feel for you if, if it was a particular phase or, or, or point in, in your life so far? Last year, just before Christmas, uh, a woman stood up for me on a bus. Right, and to, to provide you to the seat provide that you me with her seat. That's a, that's a compliment, yes. and that's a very nice thing to do, but it's also a criticism in the sense you look old. Yes. You look frail, you need to sit down. Yes. Sitting down is a common feature of being old. So how did that make you feel? I was very nice to her, obviously. I appreciated the gesture, but it didn't make me feel great because it was a revelation, something I had ignored accepting. Um, but it's not just how you feel as an old person, it's how you look. Yes. You look older. You've got lines. Um, what plans have you made for your own later life? Uh, I'm in, in a mode or a mood where I don't want to retire. Yes. Now, that's unrealistic, I believe, in many cases. Um, but that's my aspiration because I love what I do. Uh, and the other is when I'm forced to retire by other people, as no doubt I would be, uh, they say, yeah, you're not up to it anymore, Brian, that sort of thing, that conversation. Uh, I'm looking forward to writing more books. Yes. In fact, I'm on another one at the moment, which is a fiction book as opposed to factual book. Um, and I just love that experience of um, using your creativity and imagination and experience. Absolutely. Because getting older brings you all this experience that you can then put on a page and share with other people. Brian, what older person has inspired you and why did they? I think the man, he was an academic from Western Australia. I can't remember his name. Maybe it was Western Australia. He went to Austria um, to put down, to put it inelegantly. In other words, he had made this very fundamental decision over time, as I understand from reading the story about it, uh, to bring his life to an end when he got to a point where he was so frail that he literally couldn't have fun anymore in any type, and decided that it was time to go somewhere else. He couldn't do it here in Australia, so he went through the process of having it arranged and being done in, I think it was Austria. Now I thought, that's what I call courage. Mm. Bravery in the front of all these forces saying to him, don't do that, life's worth living. It's something you should aspire to, to live as long as you can. And he took the view that no, quality of life's more important to me even quality of death is more sure. important to me. Um, so he arranged to have his life taken. Now, I admire that. I'm not saying that I would like to replicate that, but the reality is I admire that courage uh, to accept the consequences of being frail and older and the quality that it doesn't provide you anymore. And he pursued his personal choice, which, as you said, is not saying that's what everybody should be doing, but it no. was, that's what was important to him. Yes, yes. Brian, thank you very much for sharing your insights and inspiration. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Marcus. Brian has left us with a lot of good advice from that conversation. The need for planning and considering future circumstances is obviously of huge importance. Brian also touched on issues such as elder abuse, which can be quite confronting, 
especially knowing that often elder abuse occurs within a family environment. If you or someone you know needs assistance or advice about their rights or their options, it's best to direct them to the Older Persons Advocacy Network, which is opan.com.au, opan.com.au. It's the best starting point for advice, information, and to understand your options for your individual circumstances. Elder abuse, discrimination and neglect are issues that need to be addressed. We need to continue to raise these issues with our political leaders, in our community groups, in our families. Thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of Booming the Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, questions you may have, suggestions for guests we should speak with, as well as sharing your own inspiring stories. Interact with us at the Booming Facebook page and Booming Instagram, or email us at info at booming.net.au. Please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and check out our website at booming.net.au. Thanks for listening and happy booming.